Welcome to Utopian Horizons. Hello and welcome to Utopian Horizons, a podcast where I cover a different utopia, dystopia, utopian thinker or movement in each episode. It has been a while since I've done um, a person, uh, an individual, I always say it in the introduction, that uh, I want to cover utopian thinkers, but I think I've only done one person actually, which was um, Louise Michel, who was uh, involved in the Paris Commune, of that episode's way back near the beginning if you want to hear that but anyway this one is about Buckminster Fuller who is someone I've been talking about doing an episode on for a while someone I think is really interesting um kind of hard person to describe like a inventor sometimes a philosopher I suppose you could say um somebody with a a lot of talents anyway who did uh, a lot of interesting things joining me to talk about him will be Stuart McMillan who's a cartoonist who creates um, long-form comics, and uh, Buckminster Fuller is, is somebody he's also interested in, and uh, he's re- he's done a couple of comics on, so yeah, he's he, he knows a lot about um, Buckminster Fuller, so uh, yeah, he's a great person to come on and um, talk about him. Um, if this episode sounds a bit different to others, by the way, I'm uh, in England at the moment visiting family and stuff, so I'm not recording where I normally record. Uh, I've got the same microphone I bought with me, so should still be decent sound quality and stuff. But yeah, just to say if it sounds a bit different or whatever, that, that's why. Uh, one very quick thing I wanted to mention at the risk of killing my brand. Um, as some people seem to be under the, <laughs> the impression that like I'm intelligent and have really serious interests and stuff. Um, but uh, I have recently started doing another podcast with um, a couple of friends, which is about wrestling. Just to say for, to any of you who have no interest in, in that, don't worry, it doesn't take any time out of this podcast. I don't do any of the work, I don't do any of the social media, I don't do the editing, I don't host it, so it, it's not going to affect this podcast in any way, it doesn't take uh, any significant time for me to do or anything. So but yeah, if, if you are into that, then it's called Five Stars in the Tokyo Dome, and it's a podcast where we're working our way through every five-star rated match in wrestling history and uh yeah i think it's fun if you're into that kind of thing so you can just yeah search for that wherever you listen to podcasts you should be able to find it so yeah um that out of the way and hopefully uh none of you have like unsubscribed after hearing that i have uh an interest in in wrestling then we'll uh, move on with, with this episode um anyway i think that's enough on that i think now it's just best to get onto the conversation with Stuart so that you can here and exactly who Buckminster Fuller was and find out why why I and many other people consider him to be a utopian so um yeah on to my conversation with Stuart joining me now is Stuart McMillan Stuart is a comic book creator who creates um, long-form comics on social issues thank you very much for joining me Stuart yeah thanks for having me Paul so I, I found out about Stuart from somebody on Twitter I'm sorry I can't remember who it, who it is but they I think I was talking about Buckminster Fuller and they uh, sort of pointed me towards Stuart and said, hey, look, um, Stuart does, has done some comics on Buckminster Fuller. And I thought, yeah, he'd be a good, good person. I've, I've been looking for someone for a while to talk about Buckminster Fuller. And I thought, yeah, that'd be a good person to, to uh, come and talk on about it. So, so if, I, I wanted to ask you, you first of all, obviously I've, I've been on your site and I've seen the, the comics you've, you've done about Buckminster Fuller. 
um, stuartmcmillan.com for anybody who, who wants to go have a look at that. So I'd like to ask you, um, so first of all, could you explain briefly uh, who Buckminster Fuller is for listeners who have no idea? And could you tell me how you discovered him and why you were interested in him and wanted to do comics about him? Yeah, so his full name is Richard Buckminster Fuller, and he he um, he was called the Leonardo da Vinci of the 20th century. So he was born just um, just before the start of the 20th century in 1895 in Massachusetts in the United States, and he lived for 87 years. He died in 1983 um, at the age of uh, 87. So a lot of people call Buckminster Fuller a polymath. Mm. Um, he, he was called all sorts of things, everything from a futurist to a systems thinker, uh, an inventor, an architect. Um, those were all sort of labels that people put upon him. But the only thing that he really called himself was a comprehensive anticipatory design scientist, <laughs> which is, um, he, he had a, he had a real knack for coming up with, um, this sort of um, impressive sounding jargon to describe um, some of the concepts that he was working on. So, so I think what he meant by comprehensive anticipatory design scientist was he tried to take the broadest perspective possible in terms of human beings and to, to basically apply science and design to solve human beings' problems. So um, he, he, he was a really prolific guy. He, um, wrote more than 30 books. He um, had 28 patents in the US um, patent system. He just continuously traveled around the world. He, um, he, he did 57 world tours of speaking at various institutions around the world. And um, yeah, he, he was uh, a very far-sighted guy who just seemed to come through at the right time, especially in the 1950s and 60s, to really catch this um, space-age futurist trend that was going on at that era. One of the things that people know him most for is actually popularizing the term spaceship Earth as something to describe the planet that we live on. Yeah, it's another one of his little... Yeah, you, like you said, he's got lots of little like terms and phrases that he likes to come up with. I think he was quite into the idea of like language sort of defining how you can think and the yeah. approach you take, so... Yeah, I guess Spaceship Earth was his whole thing of, yeah, re- relevant now in a, in a sense of like thinking of the Earth as a thing that we're all on and need to be conscious of yeah, uh, maintaining. We, we, uh, we were born onto this planet that had a whole system of resources on it. Um, I guess sort of seeing it similar to a spaceship, which is um, supplied with resources, but the astronauts on board the spaceship also, as well as needing to conserve their resources, they um, generate wastes, which needs to be dealt with by the spaceship. So with some of these terms that he used, um, he, he used these very imaginative terms that, that would allow people to see um, everyday things in a, a new way. So, for example, one of the things that he mentioned is that he saw that human beings had been, that we were supplying ourselves with resources from Earth's saving account. And he thought Mm -hmm. that by using things like fossil fuels, like coal and oil, to power ourselves. And he said that we need to stop digging into our saving account and we need to start running on our current solar income. So that actually gets into the way that I found out about Buckminster Fuller personally was 10 or 15 years ago, I was learning a lot about sustainability and 
um, learning about the problems that come with climate change. And I was learning about the topic of biomimicry, which is the idea that we can actually replicate natural systems and um, have a transformative way of conducting business. And um, that was the sort of thinking that I was learning through writers like Paul Hawken and Janine Benyus. And I just saw enough of these writers quoting Buckminster Fuller as um, an inspiration to them. So that was the impetus for me deciding to research him uh, through my my research that I do. Mm. He's a really interesting guy. I think it's, yeah, the fact that you say he kind of came at the right time as well in terms of like the space agent stuff because I, I was thinking he he seems like a he seems like he, I mean you said that people people call him the Leonardo da Vinci of the 20th century and he feels like a very 20th century figure like I could today I just imagine him depressingly being like an entrepreneur the, you know what I mean he, he seems like an old-fashioned figure like the kind of inventor yeah which I don't know he feels like something that's lacking now people seem to be yeah entrepreneurs is the thing to be Mm. He, he uh, I, there's actually a great article that I read in a book called New Views on Buckminster Fuller that actually describe um, Bucky Fuller as one of the uh, possibly the last genuine utopians from the United States because he mm. really um, just liked the idea of solving problems without any personal profit motivation. So. Um, in, in fact, some of the decisions that he did was actually um, quite anti-commercial in many ways. So he would actually take the time to create some amazing inventions, but then he would have this ethic of um, choosing not to publicize them. And even though he even though he owned these twenty eight patents, he would essentially be waiting for people to come to him, such as the military, for example, or such as public housing projects and asking him whether they could use these uh, patents for their particular purposes. So he's um, he just seemed to like the process of coming up with these solutions and thought that if you come up with a, a good idea, you'll be rewarded by the universe, which was the topic that he kept on talking about. I, I think sort of in some sort of cosmic way to sort of describe the greater intellect of um, the universe rewarding people who've done good things. He seemed to think that good ideas would be rewarded by um, <laughs> the the fact that they are powerful. Um, people would just want to participate. Yeah, yeah. Um, we should probably mention as well uh, the geodesic dome. Is that how you say it? That's right. Well, I, I think it's yeah. either uh, either geodesic or geodesic, depending on whether okay. it's the British or the American pronunciation. Okay. Yeah. So that I think that's probably the his most in a very common successful invention or the the thing he's most known for perhaps that's right yeah and it was it's almost like the because that was something that he came up with um about 20 or 30 years into his career as a freelance uh, inventor dude um he'd had a lot of he, he'd sort of done the groundwork with a lot of earlier prototypes of um, vehicles and inventions that he'd created, but that was sort of his breakthrough invention that um, really put him on the map and not only put him on... Because he'd always been um, a figure who'd been in the press for a long time, but this was the one that actually started to earn him some 
income because he owned the patent for the geodesic dome. So he um, got these great contracts coming through from things like the US government. And all of a sudden he was earning a million dollars per year back in the 1950s. And um, he essentially plowed that revenue into his ongoing projects. He, he had an office of 20 staff that he would um, use to do various projects with. And it was purely the success of the geodesic dome that allowed him to do that. Yeah. So, and yeah. I'd, I'd be happy to tell you more about the geodesic dome for the, the listeners who aren't familiar yeah, yeah. about you, what the technology could, is. Yeah. Could you explain? Yeah. If that'd be good for people who don't know. Yeah. So yeah, essentially a geodesic dome is a dome shaped building um, which looks like a either a dome or a, a sphere, depending on how it's constructed. Uh, but if you look closely, it's actually made of a series of triangles or hexagons that are fitting together. So uh, two examples that people might be aware of is the Epcot Center at Disney World in Florida or the Eden Project over in Cornwall. Mm -hmm. And um, they had that sort of um, that classic sort of hexagon um, honeycomb style grid. And the, when Buckminster Fuller came up with this, um, it, it's almost like, in the words of one uh, reviewer of his work, it's almost like he found the signature of God because um, it's, this, it's an invention that actually pops up in many places in nature. Um, if you look at certain molecules and viruses actually construct themselves with this sort of hexagonal sphere construction. Mm -hmm. And the reason why geodesic domes are an impressive invention is for two reasons. Number one is strength and number two is energy efficiency. So the great thing about geodesic domes is they are really strong. It's um, harnessing the, the architectural strength of triangles mm -hmm. as a shape. So, um, and unlike any other building in the world, the bigger you build a geodesic dome, the stronger it gets because any force that you might put onto one part of the dome is actually evenly distributed by all other nodes of the dome. So the, the force is actually um, spread evenly amongst the structure and that's what gives it such a good structural integrity. Okay. And in fact... Um, this was something that Bucky Fuller had to convince people about when he first uh, invented the geodesic dome because people were so used to structures built with traditional right-angled square or rectangular construction techniques that they were not they were not used to this idea that things could actually get stronger as you build them larger. Mm. And so one of the critical tests that he had for the geodesic domes was in 1954 when the U.S. government was actually, uh, this was in the middle of the Cold War, and the U.S. government was actually wanting to have a series of military radars on the north of uh, North America to warn them against any Russian missile attacks that might be coming through. Mm. And, of course, this would be up in the Arctic Circle, which is known for having 100-mile-an-hour uh, winds or 200-mile-an-hour winds. So... They, after quite a long uh, process of consulting MIT engineers who tried all these ways to create uh, buildings that could house a radar and still survive 200 mile an hour winds, mm. they somehow heard about Bucky Fuller's geodesic domes and they reluctantly um, tested this on a mountain in New Hampshire called Mount Washington. 
And so what they did was they flew in this sort of a, a kit which they um, which had a whole lot of triangular panels that they used to construct a geodesic dome out of fiberglass. And these um, the the military testers had actually been so used to structures failing within seconds or minutes that they they built the dome on the top of the mountain and then got out the stopwatch and then started the stopwatch to learn how many seconds or minutes the right. dome would last for. Okay. And what actually happened was the dome stayed up for hours and even the next day it was up, it had survived 100 mile an hour winds mm. and they tried all these force um, load tests on the, the structure, and including actually pulling on it with a, a crane and... It got to the point where the crane was failing and the dome was staying still. And then eventually the, the dome stayed there for two years until the designers just decided to dismantle it two years later when it was clear that it was a, an indestructible um, <laughs> object. And as well as being strong, the, the dome shape of the geodesic dome would just naturally shed any snow or ice that might okay. um, be developed on it. So this was what they called a ray dome, and um, it, it was a dome that ho housed a radar, and this was actually, um, once this was demonstrated, um, because Bucky Fuller owned the patent to geodesic domes, he started receiving uh, all sorts of orders from military and um, civilian applications, and he started receiving a million dollars of royalties every year. So that's the, that's the structural um, benefit of geodesic domes, but... The, the other benefit of geodesic domes is that it's a way to enclose the, um, the most volume with the least surface area. So a benefit of enclosing the most volume with the smallest surface area is it's great for energy efficiency. And the way that I like to explain this to people is just imagine if you had this 20 litre cauldron of soup on a, a stovetop in front of you and just imagine if you had another 20 litres of soup, but you'd actually divided that out into 50 different bowls that were sitting on a countertop. Now, you can imagine that if you tip the soup out into a whole lot of different um, bowls, they would actually cool down much quicker than a large cauldron, which, was, mm. uh, which only was losing heat around the edges of it. So that's, um, that's one of the reasons why, because if you have a smaller surface area, you'll either keep your coolness or you'll keep your warmth inside with the least amount of leakage. Okay, cool. Yeah, because I'm not very good on the maths and stuff of geodesic <laughs> days, so I'm glad you're there to explain it for me. So um, we've already kind of touched on this a little bit, but the reason I'm interested in Buckminster Fuller, unsurprisingly, given the subject of the podcast, is, is I think of him as, as a utopian. So, um, and you, you've already mentioned a, a quote there where he was referred to as, as the last American utopian. So, yeah, I went to ask, would, would you agree with that? And in what way do you think of his, him as a utopian? Like, what about his perspective would you think of as utopian? Yeah, well, I think it's interesting to just talk about the way that Bucky Fuller got to be the way that he was, because he he had a very pivotal moment when he was 33 years old that really... Um, influenced the way that he behaved for the final 56 years of his life. So he'd, as a young man, well, as a boy, he grew up in a, quite a privileged household in Massachusetts and got a good, good quality education. And then from that point onwards, he 
Um, he had a variety of different jobs that worked out to differing levels of success, mm-hmm. um, including uh, he was in the Navy for a while and had officer training within the Navy. But another uh, a downside was he got into a business which ultimately failed. And um, he had a daughter who uh, died from spinal meningitis after she had a very sickly childhood and died at the age of four, which really distressed him. Um, Mm. So basically he had this moment when he, in 1927, where he really, uh, the way that he put it was he actually considered committing suicide because he wondered whether his family would, whether they would be better without him and just having his insurance check to look after themselves. Yeah. And then the way that he describes it is that he actually um, he went to a lakeside and considered committing suicide. And then this voice spoke to him and told him, you do not have the right to eliminate yourself. You need to be serving the interests of humanity. And um, it was from that point onwards, he basically decided to use his efforts, um, as you say, sort of in a utopian way to to try and. The way that he put it is he set himself a mission for how to make the world work for 100% of humanity in the shortest possible time through spontaneous cooperation without ecological damage or disadvantage to anyone. So he, that's, that's quite a mission to, it's, <laughs> it's quite a mission to set yourself to, um, yeah. to um, essentially he, he realized that he wanted to stop working for personal profit and he wanted to work in service of humanity as a whole and he the way that he put it was you can either choose to decide to earn money and have that as your primary goal or you can choose to make sense and so what he meant by that is if you if you choose to make money as your primary goal you're motivated by bad motivations and you will probably fail. But if you choose to do things that will benefit humanity, the money will somehow follow you. And I, I guess that's how that's how his life worked out by um, by dedicating himself to the bigger problems. He seemed to have these opportunities that came to him from people who wanted his help. And he was able to do things like design housing and design inventions that led us to um, hopefully a better world today, I'd, I'd say. Yeah, he, he's somebody who I think I think in some ways ahead of his time in the way that he has a very global perspective. Like he thinks of, he always thinks of things in the, in the global terms. He thinks of, the like you said, he thinks of the whole of humanity. He thinks in the, the long term about, yeah, yeah, things like sustainability is really, I don't know how often he used the word sustainability, but certainly if you're looking at what he's, talking about in terms of yeah like he always wants to use resources as efficiently Mm. as possible he wants it to apply to everyone he knows it has to be global and i think this is really yeah it's very contemporary sort of now yeah i think he might have come before the word sustainability was in vogue but he Mm. (laughs) in the 1930s he used the word ecology in his publications and that would have been well and truly ahead of what um, most people were familiar with, because I don't think the word ecology entered the the general lingo until the 1960s or the 1970s when the yeah. sort of hippie movement was coming through. And you're right that he, he essentially was a, a very early systems thinker. And he thought that we, 
the way that he put it was we would have a design science revolution to solve humanity's problems. And even from the very beginning, straight after he had this uh, almost suicidal experience where he, he decided that he could either um, sink or think, the way is what he put it as. Um, he could either sink in the water of Lake Michigan or he could start to think. He, he started thinking about how we could use energy and how we could use water and all sorts of resources in the most efficient way. And I, I think he would have been very ahead of what many people would have even been considering. So, for example, the bathroom that he designed in the 1930s, he, he drew upon his experience in the United States Navy and realized that he was thinking back to when he was in the Navy and he'd see some of the naval engineers who were just totally covered in grease coming up onto the deck of the ship during a rainstorm and somehow the high pressure mist that was coming off the the ocean spray would just start to melt all the grease off the bodies of the the workers and so he used this principle to develop what he called a fog gun which would give someone a complete shower and clean them with only one pint of water as the um the water that would be used in the shower so this was um, really ahead of his time. He was talking about solar power in the 1930s. This wasn't something that he personally worked upon, but he just knew that we could be looking to the sun to power ourselves. And he was thinking about things like composting toilets and how to use the, the least amount of water. He, he talked about this concept called um, ephemeralization, which was how we can use the least amount of resources to still get the same ultimate result from our our activities yeah i I think another really important element of that is what you've already said about him not he's not his goal here is never profit because for all of these inventions his it's always important to him that they would cheap basically because if these inventions weren't available or applicable to all of humanity then for him they're kind of worthless like he's not somebody yeah. who's inventing stuff for a certain you know clientele of people. He's he's only interested in things that can be applicable to everybody. Yeah, and and he seemed to, unlike a lot of companies that you see in these days, who seem to want to sell a person something and then lock them into um, some sort of a, an ongoing payment plan, or you know, some sort of a. You know, for example, if you buy a printer, you then get into the cycle of having to buy printer cartridges to match that yeah. particular brand. He seemed to like the idea of creating products that would give people as many different options as possible, and so that they could live their lives from that point onwards. Yeah. Do you have any sense of of what Buckminster Fuller's politics are? Um, like I, I mean, I've read some of his stuff, and I don't recall him talking much explicitly about politics. Or I don't know if he would think of himself as being political. But I think there is—I don't know—there is an element, explicit or not, it feels like there's an element of anti-capitalism there. Yeah. So he 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 tended to stay away from discussing politics in a traditional way when it came towards things like um, being a Democrat or being a Republican. Um, he seemed to be skeptical of, he, he seemed to prize the individual as 
the one um, divisible unit that could actually make change. So, mm -hmm. for example, he was skeptical of corporations because he felt that they were this abstract concept that didn't really exist and that they there was a kind of a, a weird group think of corporations that could be surpassed by just one human making a decision on their own. Mm. But he seemed to pair this, um, he seemed to pair this idea of the, the individual with a, a large amount of social responsibility. So he, my reading of this, Paul, and I might be completely wrong, but he seemed like he was he would have been a proponent of a universal basic income if that would have been a concept available at the time. So he... Yeah, I can see that, yeah. One of the ways he put it is that... And this is, this is a quotation that I find a little uh, exaggerated personally, but he said that 90% of people today in the United States are working on things that provide no life support benefits for the population. So he said that we've got all these insurers, we've got insurers of insurers, we've got all these inspectors and inspectors of inspectors, we've got all these people just working on useless projects. And he said that um, the way that he put it is we should all be on some sort of a welfare system that um, it, it would almost be more because of the fact that he saw that we were in many cases working on useless projects. He seemed to think that it would be better if people were paid not to work rather than being paid to work. And he had this optimistic view that uh, it would only take one person per thousand coming up with the great breakthrough that would sort of pay for all those other thousand people who were not working. So he, yeah. so that, that's what makes me think he would have supported this universal basic income idea is that if you provide for everyone, there'd be this one person out there who'd come up with these genius inventions that would allow the other 100 or 1000 idle people um, to, to continue living which well, I, mean, I mean it ties in with a lot of things that people feel about automation and stuff now is that yeah basically we can use automation to yeah to sort of liberate people from work and have universal basic income and things like that so again i think yeah ahead of his time yeah and, uh, i think he might have with that quotation that i discussed before i think he well that, that was something that he came up with in his 80s when he seemed to want to be making quite prophetic statements at that stage and i think that like for example in his list of the people who were providing no benefit to society he included teachers as part of the list and i think that comes down to okay. his, i think that comes down to his view that it's all to do with this efficiency idea that he spoke about so often so he just, I think he thought it was inefficient to have all these um, hundreds and thousands of teachers scattered all around the world when there might be five really good teachers in the whole of America. And so why don't we just have some sort of a broadcast system where uh, the five really good teachers could be teaching the entire country at once and, and that would be a better way to do things which okay. yeah I, not not all his ideas are good <laughs> yeah i think he's he's overlooking the fact of direct education from a teacher in the classroom and he seemed to think that just by linking everyone up to the internet um people would automatically 
use their time productively online and use it for worthwhile endeavors. I think it's because he was such a high-minded person who spent all of his time on high-minded endeavors that he just didn't imagine that someone would sit on the couch and play video games or watch videos and sort of waste their time in that way. Yeah, or have the talent for like everything which he seemed to naturally have. Yeah. Like I feel like he he basically could self-teach himself anything he wanted. So. Exactly, or, or give yeah. the impression he that he really could that. anyway. And just another benefit that he had as well was he he tended to be awake for 20 hours a day for a lot of his life. He he uh he was renowned for only sleeping for about 4 hours per day. At one stage he was one of the early pioneers of polyphasic sleeping, which is the idea that you stay awake for 6 hours and then have a 30 minute sleep and then go for another 6 hours and then have a 30 minute sleep. That was something that he did early on in his life until apparently his wife got so annoyed with him that he was forced to get closer to a normal sleep schedule. But uh, even when he was in his 70s, when he was at the peak of his fame later in life, he was just renowned for being the last one up at a party and the first one up in the morning and spending all of his time working on correspondence and mathematics. And he was a force to be reckoned with from what the biographies of him say. Hello, it's me again. Just jumping in briefly to say that if you have been enjoying this episode and the podcast in general, and you'd like to help to support me to continue doing this, you can do so at patreon.com slash utopian horizons, where if you sign up to support me, you'll get access to a whole load of bonus episodes that I've produced for Patreon subscribers and continue to produce. I cover a whole host of stuff, including Mark Frisch's Capitalist Realism, video games, uh, an anime TV series, all sorts of um, cool things that uh, I can just take a look at in a, a slightly different format to the to the main podcast, and uh, yeah, hopefully you would enjoy it if you if you enjoy the main one. So please check that out and have a look if there's anything that would interest you there. If not, reviews on Apple Podcasts or whatever you listen to this on would be greatly appreciated as well. Uh, it's very nice for me to read them, and it helps with the the podcast as well. Just to yeah make it more visible to people and uh, help spread the word cheers uh, sorry for my little interruption then we'll now go back to the conversation with Stuart. okay well um seeing as you've written a comic about specifically one of his uh ideas which is uh, his idea of uh energy slaves could you explain like what what that is and how that relates to his ideas on energy yeah so this is just an extension of bucky imagining the entire sweep of human history and seeing what a remarkable world that we live in at the moment. Uh, It's actually worth mentioning that Bucky Fuller, because he was born in 1895, his life very much uh, mirrored the rise of fossil fuels in human um, experience. Mm. So, for example, he when he was born, the primary transportation that people would have had would have been walking around or horse and carriage. Mm. And then he lived through this rise of petrol-powered cars and he lived through um, aeroplanes coming into the skies for the first time and then becoming a common occurrence that people could um, take plane trips later on in his life and he lived through the the space age as well so he just he he was a great chronicler of what seemed like a, an everyday experience to someone born in the 1960s 
was actually so amazing for someone of his age who had grown up with quite limited technology. Mm. So what I did in my comic, and uh, people can visit this comic by going to energyslaves.com, is I talk about Buckminster Fuller. Um, I, I had this scenario where Buckminster Fuller's in a traffic jam and he's sort of looking at all the cars around him, which are just sort of idling in the traffic jam. And he's thinking about all of the hundred horsepower engines in the cars around him and how all the, the fossil fuel energy of those, um, those cars is just really being wasted. And then in my comic, and, and this is something that's based upon Bucky Fuller's own um, writing, Bucky Fuller wondered why people are still using this term horsepower when we're mostly unfamiliar with horsepower in our day-to-day lives. So he, he realized that we can actually take any unit of energy, and this is something that the listeners to this podcast can just look around at the moment and see the light bulbs that are on, see the cars that are driving down the streets, just any energy that we have in our lives, we can actually imagine the human energy equivalent that those tasks require so for example i'm in my room at the moment uh, in my art studio and i've got a light bulb on i've got my computer on and i can imagine an imaginary person in the corner of my room running on a treadmill to provide the energy that's powering this um, computer and this lighting system at the moment so that's something that buckminster fuller did he actually he tried to calculate the imaginary workers that keep our everyday lives running. So for example, he, um, he started to calculate the amount of imaginary workers that it would take to, to generate the energy that we put into our cars every time that we fill up the petrol tank. And, uh, the, the amazing statistic is that if you fill up your car with petrol, the amount of energy in the tank would take 900 years of human uh, effort to produce. So uh, another way to look at that is if you were to get an everyday person like you, Paul, if we were to get you and put you on a treadmill for eight hours a day, 250 days a year, the amount of energy that you would be able to expend with your own body, Paul, is only the equivalent of 14 liters of petrol or 14 liters of gasoline in the American terminology. So that's that's what I depict in my comic. I show all of these everyday occurrences, such as someone driving a car down the street, someone um, going to the shops and buying some food. I, I, I want the, the everyday experiences to seem strange and super normal in the way that I draw the comic. And I point out that even, even taking a, a plane trip from the, US, from the USA to the United Kingdom that single plane trip uses more energy than any of us could generate with our bodies across our entire lifetime. And in fact, the amount of energy in that single plane trip is actually more than the entire human civilization used during the entirety of the Stone Age. So it's just amazing what we do with our day-to-day lives that is purely reliant on fossil fuel energy. And the point that I make towards the end of the comic, which is something that Buckminster Fuller Uh, raised through his writing is just wondering where our future energy slaves are going to come from and wondering and hoping that while we have the energy slaves available to us at the moment that we wisely invest them and 
start building systems like renewable energy systems that will actually be able to power us after all of the fossil fuels have gone. Yeah, this is this is really important as well now because if we are to transfer, uh, you know, move to renewables and you know create more sustainable, like it will take the energy that we have to do it with now will have to be from fossil fuel energy. So it's really important that we use that those energy slaves in uh, Buckminster Fuller terms, like while we still can, because there's going to come a point where it's too late to to do that. Yeah, because there's a lot of embodied energy that goes into a wind turbine because we need to. We need to dig up the iron ore from the ground and then turn it into steel, and we need to transport the wind turbine to where it's going to be located. And yeah. all of those things, they do pay off. I think it's about a 10-year payoff period for a wind turbine, but we just need to, as I say in the comic, we need to be investing it wisely now so that once the fossil fuel energy slaves uh, go away, we've got this uh, replacement system there, which is using the current solar income of the sun to power ourselves. Mm. And this the, this Energy Slaves comic that I produced is it's kind of a companion piece to an earlier comic that I'd produced called Peak Oil. And that's about um, the US geologist M. King Hubbard, who did a lot of work to to look at the finite fossil fuels that we have, in particular the finite petroleum that we have. So if anyone wants to read the Energy Slaves comic, I encourage them to look at my Peak Oil comic as well. He's, I think he's, this thing he's really good at is like, this is, this is like the spaceship Earth term as well. He's really good at just taking something like the idea of horsepower and then just changing the concept slightly to like kind of transform the way it, that you look at something. Yeah, I think that's... it's an imaginative way of looking at it. And it's one of those things because... I don't know if you know this, but Bucky Fuller kept every single um, letter that he ever wrote. He kept every single letter that he received. And he's got this entire archive of his um, work, which is available um, for people who go to Harvard University to um, to sift through. It's, it's, it's a 45-ton collection of all of every single paper that ever crossed his desk. And it's almost like... Um, he lived his life, but there's enough material there for people like me to go through and to create these spin-off projects like the Energy Slaves comic. So I guess instead of drawing a comic about his Dymaxion vehicle or his geodesic dome, I decided to uh, look at this Energy Slaves concept, which was one of his lesser known um, topics until I decided to draw my comic. Sure. Uh, you just mentioned the Demoxian uh, stuff. Could you exp um, ex talk a bit about the, the Demoxian houses and, and vehicles and the kind of principles behind them? Because I think this, again, ties into kind of how he worked as an inventor or like what his kind of priorities were. So Dymaxion was basically a brand name that Buckminster Fuller used for all of the products that he created during the 1930s through until his death. So there was everything from the Dymaxion map which was a new way of um, projecting the Earth onto a, a triangular-based map mm. um, through to some of the more well-known inventions like the Dymaxion vehicle, which was a three-wheeled car that he, um, he tried to produce in the uh, mid-1930s. And all of these products were part of his way of trying to use design science to create these products that would... Um, allow people to live their lives in a better and more energy efficient way. 
And um, if, if anyone hasn't seen the Dymaxion car, I encourage them to look at a photograph of it because um, compared to the, the boxy Model T Ford-style cars that were being produced in the 1930s, this was a really streamlined vehicle that it sort of looks a little bit like a porpoise or a little bit like a fish. And it had these three wheels. It had the two wheels at the front that were providing the drive, which was really unusual for its time. And it had a single wheel at the back that was being used for the steering. And Bucky Fuller, he, this was a good way of proving the way that he was using efficiency to solve his problems. Um, he was using a standard Ford engine that he just pulled from a 1930s uh, Model B Ford uh, it's just a 90 horsepower engine, but he was able to get a top speed of 120 miles per hour. And that was purely due to the streamlined shape of the vehicle that he produced. And um, to get that same performance of the 90 horsepower engine from a traditional Ford car of the era, it would have actually taken uh, 300 horsepowers to push the, the traditional Ford to the same limits. But not only was it more powerful in terms of speed, it was actually more energy efficient. So um, a typical Ford car of the day got only 19 miles to the gallon, but uh, Bucky's Dymaxion car got 30 miles to the gallon. So it was an example of getting better performance for less input. And there's actually a great story that goes with um, the launch of the Dymaxion car uh, well, f firstly, whenever he drove it anywhere, there'd just be these huge crowds that would mob the car and um, want to see what it looked like and see some of the funky turns that it was able to do. And you can actually look on YouTube and see a little 80-second um, clip of uh, the car being mobbed by people in the streets in black and white footage. But they had this occasion where they took the, the three-wheeled car to a speedway and they showed it as... Um, just a, a little feature during the intermission of the racing. And this was an 11-seater car. So Bucky um, got a whole bunch of his friends to go in the car and they did a few laps of the track. And after they finished their little joyride around the track, someone actually came up to them and said, did you know that you just broke the speed record of the track by 50%? So even though they weren't even trying and even though they had many people in the 11-seater car, they actually um, inadvertently broke the speed record, which just really goes to show what a what a leap it was. Unfortunately, it, it had, um, there was an accident involving the Dymaxion car that actually created such bad publicity, even though it was um, the other motorist that caused the problem and he was just unable to find support for for that car. And so it just became one of these museum pieces that never actually went into production. But that was... I think he didn't... Oh, go sorry, on. as you can say, I don't think he, he didn't have... Did he have any other successes, like, apart from his geodesic dome? Or because I get the impression his, his Damaxian house wasn't successful either, right? Yeah. And it feels like that was the only thing he really sort of, in terms of inventions, that's the only thing that really... Caught on, yeah. So he had the he had a few iterations of the Dymaxion house. The first one was really pie in the sky and only existed as a blueprint. It was never even made as a prototype. There was one mm. in the middle that was during World War II called the Dymaxion deployment unit that was actually commissioned by the U.S. military and uh, deployed as housing for people living in remote 
uh, tropical locations, and apparently that was quite a success um, for that purpose. But then the, I guess the Dymaxion house that most people talk about, uh, there was only one prototype that was made, and that existed in Wichita, Kansas. And the way that people can imagine the house is it's sort of an eight-sided octagon-shaped house that was designed to be flat-packed and then installed onto a site. And this could have been, in Bucky Fuller's idea, mass-deployed around the country as a... Um, an example of a house that would cost roughly the same amount as a motor car would. But um, there was just something about... Bucky felt that it wasn't actually ready to be deployed, whereas the business interests were really pushing him to get something out the door that was not quite what he was happy with. And he, he essentially walked away from that project and probably burnt a lot of commercial bridges by leading people down the path and then and then deciding to walk away despite mass interest there were all these people who were sending him checks in the mail because they wanted to own one of his houses but he says that um mm. after he walked away with that one apparently that very night he sort of went down and started working on the geodesic dome and um the maths kind of came together for the geodesic dome after the failure of the dimaxian house mm. Whether that's really true or not, I mean, there's there's a lot of myth making that goes on with Buckminster Fuller, but um, it is true that uh, one thing did follow the other, and he did have a big hit with the geodesic domes. Yeah, but again, people can see the same sort of principles emerging there, like the efficiency, the idea that it'll be flat packed, so it'd be cheap, so it'd be available to lots of people. So yeah, again, this is all stuff that he's mm. thinking about with. Um, his inventions yeah I, I thought it might be fun to talk about some of his sort of more uh out there ideas as well so yeah there's a few that i really like yeah go on then what are the ones that uh, what are the ones that stick out for you yeah so one of my favorites and it, it's almost one of those things that's so outlandish that people would write it off right away but it's it's the kind of thing that would actually could work if we wanted to do it and that is he just had all these ideas for how we could use geodesic domes for many things in our life and um, one of them was putting a huge geodesic dome over the top of manhattan so it would have been a two mile diameter dome that would cover mid manhattan island and the reason why he was talking about this dome is uh, if you think about it if you were able to encase the entire city in a dome, there there would be much less surface area of all the buildings in the city and it would be much more efficient to just heat the entirety of the dome rather than heating all of the individual buildings. Yeah. And even though it sounds counterintuitive, the, the total surface area of a two-mile dome that would be going over Manhattan would actually be only one eighty-fourth that of all of the current buildings in the city. And I guess that's getting back to the example that I had before about all the individual bowls of soup compared to just yeah, yeah. one big cauldron. Um, he thought that all of the individual walls and windows and so forth of all the individual buildings are actually 84 times larger than what it would be to have that dome. And... Um, uh, apparently, even though you might imagine it would take a huge amount of resources to create this thing, he pointed out that it would, it would actually take less steel than what is in the Queen Mary ship, which might sound really counterintuitive, but 
Um, this might be a statistic that you're aware of, Paul, but um, if you just imagine the Eiffel Tower in, in Paris, did you know that if you were to melt down all of the steel in the Eiffel Tower or all of the iron in the Eiffel Tower, mm. should I say, it would actually only be six and a half centimeters in height if you were to cover the base of the Eiffel Tower, okay. which goes to show that it's that's uh, using engineering techniques like lattice construction is actually really efficient. So you don't necessarily need a lot of material to make some of these mega projects if you design them efficiently. That's a good one. And just Sorry, go the next, the, the second and maybe the final of these mega projects that I'll um, talk about is uh, Bucky Fuller had this idea called Cloud Nine, which yeah. was essentially a floating city. So essentially this was going to be a huge spherical geodesic dome that would float above the surface of the earth. And the reason why he came up with this idea was he was, again, similar to the Manhattan Dome idea that I was just talking about, he realized that the larger you make a geodesic dome, the smaller the weight of the, the dome itself is compared to the weight of the contents of the dome mm. and uh, getting back to the Eiffel Tower example again um, a lot of people don't realize this but if you were to put a theoretical cylinder all the way around the Eiffel Tower spanning the diameter of the Eiffel Tower um, all the way to the height of the Eiffel Tower the weight of the air would actually be more than the weight of the metal of the Eiffel Tower right so that's, it sounds unbelievable, but um, it, it is true that um, the Eiffel Tower contains about seven and a half thousand tons of iron, whereas the air inside that's, that cylinder is about nine and a half thousand tons. And that's basically the idea that Bucky Fuller came up with, with these cloud nine structures. He, he realized that the bigger you make the, the sphere, the, the more negligible that weight would be compared to the air inside. And you'd actually have a hot air balloon effect where the, the warm air inside the sphere would actually be, um, it would be more buoyant than the neighboring air and it would float above the ground. This was something that you could either tether to a mountaintop, for example, or you might possibly be able to have it free floating throughout the air and allow people to be tourists on a, some sort of a free-floating um, sphere going around the world. Yeah, this was something that he wasn't—he wasn't seriously proposing that people get out and immediately build these things. But it was just the idea of a, a thought experiment that would encourage people to think differently about the world and to consider things that might otherwise seem outlandish, but are actually possible if we decided to put the, the effort into doing it. Yeah, I think that's my favourite one. Uh, I definitely wouldn't live in a floating city. <laughs> I would not try. Yeah. I would not. Or in some of the other projects that he proposed. I mean, there's a saying, which is that one man's utopia is another man's dystopia. Yeah. And if you look at some of the projects that he was proposing, such as... There's, there was a city that he designed called the Old Man River City, which was going to be in East St. Louis, which would have housed 70,000 residents inside this huge structure. There was another one called Tetrahedron City, which was going to be a floating city off the, off the coast of Tokyo that would have been this enormous pyramid that would have housed 300,000 apartments. And you just wonder, I mean... 
these things look great on paper, but would people have actually enjoyed living in these perfect worlds with all these um, perfectly uh, ordered streets and all of these perfectly efficient um, triangular designs? I wonder whether people actually like a bit of grit in their life and like a you know like some of the the randomness that comes with the cities that we're familiar with. Yeah, no, yeah, no, that's definitely true. But yeah, they're nevertheless, I think, interesting projects. And again, I, I think showcases his like utopian ideals of let's make this big city that, and again, like you say, like so stuff like that floating city. The idea was that it would sort of you know recirculate its own water, and so again, all those principles of efficiency stuff are built into these things. So. There's a lot of stuff from this episode that you, it's uh, cool to Google and have a have a look at, like some of these ideas and projects and stuff that he uh, built. So yeah, I'd encourage people to have a look. Um, just as we uh, wrap up here, um, what what would you think of as, as being the legacy of of Buckminster Fuller? Yeah, I think a lot of people think about Buckminster Fuller, and if they're not being very charitable, they'll say, oh, he's the guy who invented all of those cars and all of those inventions that never got built. And they they somehow point to that as a failure of him. Mm. But I think that the best way, the greatest legacy that Bucky Fuller's left on the world is just the inspiration and the the out-of-the-box thinking that he provided, which has really, it's inspired a lot of, people who are working and and designing today. So everyone from Stuart Brand, who created the whole Earth catalogue back in the early 1970s, to to Norman Foster, the the architect behind the Gherkin building in London, they were really influenced by just some of the the thinking that he had towards the problems that he approached. And uh, I think that is his legacy. It's just the the ideas that he provided us with and the way that we can combine an ecological thinking with a technological way of going about things, which were two somewhat contradictory ideas in people's minds back in the back in the 1960s and 70s, which he was able to say, no, we don't need to have either the environment or technology. We can actually have a a dual approach that takes both of them into account. Yeah, sure. And any thoughts on where people should go if they wanted to find out more about Bucky? Mm, yeah, no, it's a question that I'm often asked. Um, a lot of people come to me and they say, I want to learn about Buckminster Fuller. Which books of his should I read first? And my answer is always, if you want to learn about Buckminster Fuller, you shouldn't begin by reading his own books. And the reason I say that is even though he came up with so many great ideas, he isn't necessarily the best explainer of his own ideas because he writes in a very jargon-heavy style, um, often with paragraph-length sentences, and they can be quite frustrating and quite off-putting for new readers who haven't been primed. So um, I've probably got two recommendations for people who want to begin reading about him. The first is there's a great um, online article that was originally published in the New Yorker magazine in 1965 by a writer called Kelvin Tompkins. That article is called In the Outlaw Area. So just have a look for that one on the web. And if if people want to read a book-length biography of Bucky Fuller, there was a great biography published a little bit after he died in 1989 
by a writer called Lloyd Stephen Seiden, and the title of that biography is Buckminster Fuller's Universe, His Life and Work. And that's quite a, quite a glowing biography of Bucky Fuller, written by someone who worked closely with Bucky. Um, it might be a good idea to pair that book with another book, uh, which is a little more critical of his work, which was published in 2009 called New Views on R. Buckminster Fuller. So that, that second book sort of um, puts a little bit more of a skeptical and a little bit more of a contextual approach to Bucky and his legacy. Where can people uh, find your comics and some of your stuff if they want to check it out? Yeah, so I guess if, if they've listened to this episode, it's probably best to have a look at my Energy Slaves comic. And just the, the best way to get there is just to type in energyslaves.com and that'll just redirect to that part of my website. And when you're on the website, you can click through the menu system and look at all the other topics that I've drawn about, which is everything from environmental issues to energy to classic psychological experiments. I'm in the middle of a project called 25 Arguments Against Billboards, where I'm just pushing back on the idea about billboard advertising as something that we should endure in our everyday life. So yeah, just energyslaves.com is the best way to get there. Cool. Okay. Well, uh, thank you very much, Stuart. It's yeah. been fun. Thanks, Paul. That is the end of my conversation with Stuart. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, if you've got any questions or comments or feedback, or you just want to talk to me about something or whatever, you can get in touch with me on utopianhorizonspod at gmail.com. You can tweet me on Twitter at Utopian Horizons. There's a Facebook at facebook.com slash Utopian Horizons. And there's also a Utopian Horizons Discord, which uh, if you just go on the Twitter, you can you can find the link to that in the pinned tweet. Um, so you can come chat to me there as well. Um, I don't know exactly what I'm going to be doing for the next episode, but I do plan to be doing uh, an episode on Snow Crash in the not too distant future. So uh, I just thought I may as well say now, if you do have... Yeah, if there's, if you've read that book and you had any of your own thoughts on it, then again, send them to any of those addresses, uh, handles that I mentioned there. So yeah, it might be cool to have some stuff to read out uh, on the episode from from some of you if you've got any thoughts on it. Um, I think what I might do as well uh, is start... I haven't started reading it yet, but I've got a book called Economic Science Fictions, which is seems like very much my type of thing. Um I was thinking I might sort of start. It's kind of a collection of essays, so I thought I thought I, thought I might start interspersing some of those in in as well. Um, I was thinking I might do one on this main feed, then uh, one on the Patreon feed, and alternate like that. Um, but yeah, I have to start reading it first and see if it'll work for that kind of thing. But that's something that might be coming. That is the end of this episode. Thanks for listening, and I'll be back again soon. Cheers. Bye bye.